0: What is
1: Join with me
0: now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and easternchristianmedia.com, a A broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Light of the East is also funded by a grant from the Koch Foundation.
1: Glory to Jesus Christ, welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya. I hope you are enjoying and well, Not only enjoying, but actually being refreshed, deepened in your spirituality by a sincere observance of this Advent season. In the Eastern churches, we call it the Philip's Fast. As you recall, it's because it happens to begin the day after the Feast of St. Philip in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, and that is a 40 day period, a little bit shorter in the Western churches with Advent. Nonetheless, we're all converged now into this period of preparation, of anticipation of the coming of the Lord, the newborn Savior. And also, especially in the West, there's a certain emphasis on the expectation of the second coming of Christ. So it's very interesting. We enter into the coming of Christ for the first time, his birth, while at the same time looking forward, especially in the West, to the coming of Christ again at his second coming, the final judgment. It's interesting how in the church and in the events of Christ himself, there is this timelessness, this what we call kairos time, as opposed to chronos or chronological time that we live in. We have a strong sense of today, then there's tomorrow, then there's the next day, then there was the day before, and so on. Kind of like a compartmentalized sense of time, sort of marches on in order, linear. But in the events of Christ— in the ultimate big picture, and therefore in the life of the church. You especially see this in the Eucharist. There is a timelessness where past, present, and future become one. And that's what's so much really, well, at least I'll use the term fun. I find it fun as well as refreshing and prayerful to enter into these great holy days of the church because of that timelessness. Because we speak and we pray. In terms of this event happening now, in our prayers, we say that today Christ is born in the manger, or today he is baptized, and we enter into that today as though, in fact, it were happening today. In fact, we don't even use the word today. I mean, we, we do, but you could almost not use it and just say that we're entering into it, period, because it's timeless. It's not even a today. It's a yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever, That's the genius of the church. And one of the reasons this is very significant and helpful, as is all things in the church, is because today, in our day, a lot of people have a sense, especially the young, of a kind of a lack of foundation, a lack of belonging. They say that the Generation X and Generation Z— You know, those are the younger adults and younger people, teenagers, upper teens, and so on. I know I don't like to necessarily categorize people, but for the sake of our discussion, there are these categories, such as Generation X and Z, but they have a difficulty belonging. They're not joiners. They might seek that. They might want that. We all do as human beings because we're meant for community, but they have a hard time with that. And so there's a certain sense of being lost or kind of out on their own. Maybe it's the technology, you know, the computers, the cell phones, where we can kind of crawl into our own world by ourselves and kind of satisfy ourselves with whatever we want to look at and watch or play with on our phones and computers. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But the fact is there is a kind of a lack of belonging, of joining up and staying with it among younger people. And in this, I am not criticizing them. I'm simply saying this is a phenomenon. And as always, the church has to be aware of phenomenons of changing times and react to it. But in that timeless way, the church doesn't have to change or get with it. The church is always with it. It just has to take its being with it and apply it in an effective evangelical way to whatever times the church finds itself in. So, the timeless church finds itself still in times and it has to react to that while still being timeless. And that's kind of a brain teaser. But in the Byzantine church, the two Sundays before the actual day of our Lord's birth, we look at the patrimony of Christ. And this is another way of being rooted, of having a sense of belonging. It's another thing our young people suffer from the sense of foundation. Let's face it, so many aspects of the foundation of society, of culture, You know, the church have been swept away, taken away, knocked down. Everything seems to be challenged today. All the tried and true ancient systems of things seem to be just challenged and knocked down, to be replaced with basically nothing. A lot of confusion, a lot of diversity, a lot of plurality. What does that mean? It means there's nothing really that you can count on. There's nothing that you can really set your feet on. We're all seem to be suspended in air and searching for some place to land and to belong. Well, in the church, these two Sundays before Christmas in the Byzantine church are really helpful in this regard because what happens is we take the birth of Christ and we just don't look at it in terms of a compartmentalized view. Well, okay, Christ was born. This is Christmas Day. We did Christmas. We celebrated Christmas. Rather, we look at how this event was prefigured and, in a sense, existing even before Christ was actually physically born. We call this anticipation or foretelling or allegorical typology. And that is actually what the whole Bible is about, the whole Old Testament. If you want to make the Bible really, really, really simple, although the Bible is very challenging, we always encourage people, of course, to read the Bible, read the Bible. Yes, I admit it's intimidating, but to make it simple, all you have to know is, this is what makes it fun too, because you get to kind of look for these little mysterious parallels. The Bible, the Old Testament, is simply about Jesus Christ. That's right. And his mother. And this is all prefigured in the stories and the figures of the Old Testament, from Abraham to Moses and so on. And that's what we look at this second Sunday before the birth of Christ. We look at the patrimony of the holy forefathers, the patriarchs. The next Sunday, we're going to look at the actual genealogy of Jesus Christ, in other words, his bloodline and why that is significant. But both Sundays, you've noticed, we we take and dedicate two Sundays, two Sundays before we even get to the birth of Christ, just looking at his patrimony, his history, his lineage, those that came before him, how it all was a great ingenious progression by Almighty God the Father. And this gives us a sense of rootedness about this Christ event and about ourselves. In other words, our faith, as we enter into the Christ event, we're entering into something that is very, very rooted, has a consistent kind of progression to it, going all the way back to the beginning, as far back as the Patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where the covenant between God and humanity was first announced by God, first established by God. Why did he do that? Because it was going to be a progressive, long, very, very ancient and ingenious process of Almighty God getting us to return back to Him so that His plan of salvation, His plan for us, His destiny, His marvelous destiny for us as human beings and His whole creation would still be accomplished, although it got interrupted by original sin. God was not to be outdone. So what God did was he set about this master plan in which he would take part in it. He was kind of like the director of a play and also the lead actor all at the same time, kind of like a player coach in sports. But he would also do it with us. That's the great, great consoling and inspiring aspect about it. I find it so inspiring because God could have done this himself. He could have saved us and reverted back to the original just by the blink of an eye, just by the very thought in his divine mind. He could have done anything. But in his love, he chose to do it in a very painstaking way and to do it with the very creature that caused him to have to go through this plan in the beginning. The human person, starting with a woman who was the first to take the forbidden fruit, he would then use a woman to undo that. To restore that. And that woman, of course, would be his mother, who becomes known as the New Eve. So God would choose a mother in order to be born as a human while still remaining God. But she would also be and become mystically his bride. And what God was doing was this whole Christ event, this whole newborn savior event, you know what that really was? That was part of a grand wedding a grand spousal mystery, as St. John Paul II would remind us in his Theology of the Body. It is the great mystery, hidden from all time and now revealed. And great mystery is a capital G, great mystery. Meaning mean, there's only one mystery, and that is that the invisible God would create visible physical matter and then unite himself with that matter, actually taken on himself. The creator becomes the creature while remaining the creator. He would do that in the same way that a man proposes to a woman and enters into intimate union with her and enters into intimate union with her in the sacrament of marriage. It's the same thing. God created a bride, that's us, and united himself with us. And that began at the very coming of Christ in the flesh in Bethlehem, which we're going to celebrate, also known commonly as Christmas. But this had a patrimony, It was prefigured and foretold centuries and centuries before, as I mentioned with the covenant of Abraham, and then the other figures like Jacob, Isaac, Moses. Moses would be a prefigurement of Christ himself, and all of the prophets in the Old Testament, the figure of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, who was tempted to do something impure, but resisted, kept his purity. All these figures, all these events in the Old Testament were part of this patrimony of Christ, which then witnesses to the absolute solidity, authenticity of our faith and our belief in the newborn Savior. We're gonna talk more about this when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Every day,
0: Father Loya posts a brief two-minute Facebook video on the Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish homepage. You'll be amazed at what you can learn just by watching Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. What is a saint anyway? Although I was imprisoned for seven years during a terrible persecution of the church under the pagan Roman Emperor Diocletian, I am one of the first saints honored not because I suffered a bloody martyrdom like St. Peter or St. Paul. I was called a saint because people began to say, Nicholas loves Jesus so much that you can see a lot of Jesus in him. And that's what a saint is, someone who wants to become more and more like Jesus, who is the light of the world. Each and every day of our lives. One day, when a class of parochial school students were in church, their pastor asked the assembly of children, What is a saint? Then a first grade girl pointed up to a stained glass image of a saint, saying, Saints are those people who let the light in. And so, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Christ is born, glorify him. <laughs> This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and you are listening to Light of the East. The
1: Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth young adults and also for those of you who speak spanish that's taborlife.org Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loehr, your host. And again, I hope that you are having a very fruitful Advent season. Remember, there's a certain joy about it, expecting the newborn Savior to come, and also looking forward to the second coming, which, although it seems kind of frightful, and it should be to an extent because it's about the last judgment, at the same time, it's the restoration of Jesus Christ and his original plan, this wonderful plan of creation and salvation. at the same time, there should be a little bit of mourning, a little, just a touch of grief, because we should be looking at our, well, our clutter in our lives, not only in our homes, but in our souls, and get rid of the clutter. Get rid of it physically. Pull back. Fast. Pray. I know we're told to indulge and buy and shop and take on, but we really need to pull back, especially during Advent and Philip's fast. And also go to confession. Open up your day, your heart, your soul, and your time to read the scripture more, pray more, talk about more important things with family members or your spouse. Just make it different. Make it more peaceful. Remember, God did not come into the flesh to become born of a baby in Bethlehem so that we would run around, shop, and be frenzied and then broke at the end of the season. I mean, yeah, okay, all the gift giving and decorations, celebrating, it's nice. But (laughs) let's face it, he didn't come to signal us to go ahead and do that. He came actually for the opposite, that we would divest ourselves of material things, of all that is excessive, and of our sinfulness, our selfishness, and become people of peace, of humility, of deferential love, of simplicity, in a sense, people of poverty, not necessarily physical poverty, although we should have a certain evangelical poverty to our lives, but poverty meaning humility, poverty of sin. In other words, that we try not to sin. All of this is a a rich understanding, a richer understanding of what this Christmas event is. And it becomes even richer, as I've been mentioning here in this program today, especially for the young, when we find out how rooted it is, how authentic it is, how it has this deep and ancient, ingenious progression and consistency now, I want to share some of the liturgical texts with you from this Sunday of the forefathers, the patriarchs of our Lord, just to demonstrate some of this foreshadowing and this allegorical typology. In the Vesper service, it says this in our prayers, "...the three holy youths were refreshed by the Holy Spirit when they walked in the fire as though in a cool place. In them, the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ were prefigured in a mystical manner." Did you catch that? Isn't that beautiful. That's again, our prayers teach us what we believe. So when we're praying, we're really kind of spouting our theology, our belief. In them, the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ were prefigured in a mystical manner. In other words, the incarnation, the coming of Christ into the world, taking on flesh, entering in the Virgin Mary. Imagine God enters into the body of a human being. Now. Ordinarily, that would cause that human being to just vaporize. You can't contain the infinite God within you, and yet she was untouched, unharmed by having the very presence of God within her. Same thing with the three youths. They went into that fire, but they were unharmed. So this prefigures that incarnation, and also because there were three of them, the Trinity. So it is the Trinity, not only Christ, newborn Christ, mostly Christ, of course, at the birth of the newborn Savior, but not only Christ, the Trinity was revealed. And this will become very apparent a little bit later when we celebrate the baptism of Jesus Christ, where the Trinity was in fact concretely revealed. God the Father's voice booms out from heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and shines upon the savior. So we have three figures, but these three figures of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were prefigured by the 3 youths in the book of Daniel that were thrown into the furnace. And the, and although they stoked the furnace hotter and hotter, these three youths literally danced through the fire singing praises to God. You can you imagine that? They mocked the fire and the mockery of their enemies by singing praises to God and dancing through the fire. Now, that's a good lesson for young people. These were teenagers. So oftentimes when God wants to make a point or make something happen, he would call upon teenagers. That's right. How old do you think the Virgin Mary was? She was at best a teenager when she changed the world by her yes to God. Here's another prayer from our Vespers. When the three holy youth stood in the flaming furnace, as if covered with dew, they mystically prefigured your coming from the virgin, giving light to us without being consumed. And Daniel, the just and wondrous prophet, clearly saw in a vision your second divine coming. He said, I saw a throne set up, and the judge seated, and the river of the fire flowing in his presence. Through their intercession, deliver us from this fire, O Lord. Now you may recognize an image of the river of fire flowing from the throne as in the book of Revelations, which is, of course, the last book in the Bible. So there's a prefigurement there, even of the end of time, of the coming of the Lord. And Daniel is having this prefigurement of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, sitting on his throne. And all of this is in the Old Testament, and it gives that foundation, that consistency, that sense of belonging that so many people are looking for today. Our faith is based upon that. You should encourage young people, tell young people especially, you want something that has foundation? You want a sense of real belonging to something that's been around for a long time? Well, join the church. That's right. And not only join it, enter into the life of the church, especially through its liturgical calendar, its life, such as we have during these times of the incarnation. Not just Christmas Day, don't just do Christmas. Enter into the whole liturgical experience that anticipates the coming of Christ or an Advent and with these wonderful Sundays of his patrimony, and also the event itself. And then what happens after that? There's an afterglow of the birth of Christ that happens in the life of the church. All this is there to form us, to give us this foundation. There's another Vesper prayer for this Sunday of the patriarchs of Jesus Christ, his patrimony. Come, O lovers of the feast, let us sing a hymn of praise to the assembly of the forefathers. Adam, the father of the human race. Enoch, Noah, Melchizedek, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let us honor those who come after the law. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Samuel, and David. Together with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Daniel, and the twelve minor prophets. Likewise, Elijah, Elisha, and all the others. Also, Zechariah and the Baptist. In all those who preach Christ, the life and the resurrection of our race. Now, that prayer just took you through the entire scripture. As it noted here, those who came before the law, you know, the law was given to Moses. Before that, there was the covenant between God and Abraham. Then it was renewed again with Noah, after God had to wipe out bad humanity with the flood. But this sense of covenant, of faithfulness between God and us, us and God, is there prefigured in these early patriarchs, and then comes the law, and the law would give rise then to the new law, the new covenant, with the coming of Jesus Christ. No longer do we live by rules and regulations and laws, we would live, and in thee, freedom of the Spirit. A lot of times people will say, well, I don't go to church because I don't agree with the teachings. There's too many rules. And I often respond by saying, well, gee whiz, I must have flunked that class in the seminary because I don't know of any teachings or rules in the church. That's right, you heard me. I don't know of any teachings or rules. Yes, there are. Technically, we have teachings or so-called rules, but that's not really what they are. It is God who has the teachings. The church simply points to them, explains them, and calls people to live according to them because that is what will make them happy and the whole world happy. We didn't make the teachings. The church doesn't have teachings, God has them. We simply announce to the world, we're like the press secretary for God. You know what a press secretary does? You ever see those interviews, reporters ask questions at the press secretary for the president of the United States? That secretary is not supposed to have an original thought in their head. They're supposed to be, in a sense, mindless robots they're just there to tell you what the president did or said that's it they get peppered with all these questions and that's supposed to interpret that's supposed to say anything other not their own opinions they're supposed to say just what the president did or said or what he didn't do or didn't say just facts that's it that's the same thing with the church the church is here to present like a press secretary what god has said what god has done why it's wonderful and to invite people to live by it and what he has done as we're seeing in these two Sundays before Christmas he has done this wonderful plan this ordered plan that has a foundation to it a consistency to it a solidity to it and only when that plan was done at the right time you know just like when you take something out of the oven like your turkey you did maybe a couple weeks ago with Thanksgiving, it's gotta be done, it's gotta be at the right moment you take out that turkey, not before, not after. It's the same thing with God's plan. When the time was right, and only when, after he had built up this ancient plan over centuries with all kinds of prefigurements of Christ, only then did Christ come into the world, did God take on flesh. It was all an ingenious plan, giving us foundation and a sense of belonging. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed Advent and season of Phillips Fast. I'm Fr. Thomas Loya
0: on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media.
1: Folks, this is Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers Live, and Advent is the time where we're waiting for Jesus to come to us. It's right there in the name Advent. In Latin, "venire" means to come, and ad means to. So Advent is when we're waiting for Jesus to come to us, and that's what makes Advent so special. Thank you for listening.